0: Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine where we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, COPDers get PEs. Let's try being proactive about that problem. Then, PECARN, we use it a lot, so let's double check it actually does what we say it does. Then, are you back to remake? Which antibiotic should you be getting first? After that, more antibiotics begets more antibiotics, so don't start down that slippery slope. And then finally, time equals brain for more than just strokes, also for carbon monoxide. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the trustworthy Bo Stubblefield, Shannon Marcus, Vivian Lay, Seth Walsh Blackmore, Rebecca White, and Clay Smith. And so I bring you the first article, which was titled Effect of a Pulmonary Embolism Diagnostic Strategy on Clinical Outcomes in Patients Hospitalized with COPD Exacerbation: a Randomized Clinical Trial at the JAMA. You may have heard some startling numbers before in the past, like that as many as 30% of patients with COPD exacerbations have pulmonary embolisms. This sounds like a number that we really should be taking seriously, but most of the studies in the past have done kind of a poor job of assessing the prevalence in the emergency department specifically. Now, a recent cross-sectional prospective study reported that the prevalence of PEs in the emergency department in COPD patients is probably more like 6%. That's still a lot, but it's not as much as 30 Would a proactive strategy for seeking out these pulmonary embolisms be beneficial to our patients? The study was a randomized controlled trial of 746 patients with COPD exacerbations requiring hospitalization in 18 academic hospitals across Spain. All patients in the intervention group had D-dimers drawn and then went to a CTA of the chest if that D-dimer was positive. Now, a staggering 99% of the patients actually completed the trial. That's Spain for you. Anyways, the primary outcome was a composite outcome of non-fatal symptomatic VTE, readmission for COPD, or death within 90 days after randomization. This primary outcome occurred in 29% of both the control and the intervention group. And that makes this, of course, a negative trial. And that's interesting. We've got all these PEs, which are present, but it's not beneficial to be uncovering them. Although patients were excluded if PE was the initial clinical suspicion, it wasn't just this person's COPD. So if the PE is really showing itself, there's still likely a benefit to treatment. In a spoonful, while more than 1 in 20 of COPD exacerbation patients being hospitalized from the emergency department may have a pulmonary embolism, going out of our way to treat them and find them might not be beneficial. And then we have the second article titled card Algorithms for Minor Head Trauma. Risk stratification estimates from a prospective PREDICT cohort study out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Every year, some odd 800,000 children in the United States are evaluated for blunt head traumas. In doing so, we have to decide whether you need to do a CT scan of their head in order to uncover if they have even worse internal injuries. Luckily, we have the PCARN CT head rules to help us with this decision, something I know that I certainly use a lot. This rule was originally made more than 10 years ago, though, and replication is the basis of science these days, so let's check to make sure it's still working the way we'd like it to be working. In theory, of course, on top of that, like, this rule could probably be improved upon, refined. More data would obviously just help with that in the future. So these authors put PCARN to the test using data from the Australian Pediatric Head Injury Rule Study, AFIRST, that prospectively enrolled children presenting with head trauma to 10 pediatric emergency departments in Australia and New Zealand. Their primary outcome was to determine the rate of clinically important traumatic brain injuries after using PCARN rule to risk stratify these patients. All in all, they had about 1,500 kids. A clinically important TBI was here defined as death from TBI, a neurosurgical intervention being required, intubation for more than 24 hours, or hospital admission for more than 2 nights. A high risk by PCARN gave you an 8.5% chance of having a clinically important TBI. Medium risk gave you 0.2% chance, and low risk was 0%. For children under two years old, the numbers were pretty similar, 5.7, 0.7, and 0%, again for the high, medium, and low-risk groups, respectively. Getting into the details a little bit, the best high-risk predictors, that is probably the ones that you should respect the most when they're positive from the PICARN rule, were the signs of skull fracture on exam. But even that only gave you an 11% incidence of clinically important TBI. For the medium risk factors in the above two years old category, the most predictive factors were having all of the medium risk factors, and that gave you a 25% incidence. Second was a combination of severe mechanism and severe headache, which gave you a 7% incidence of clinically important TBI. This subgrouping, honestly, though, probably won't be very useful clinically to you right now, but maybe sometime in the future we'll find a use for it. The biggest limitation of this study was the pretty wide confidence intervals, which is due to the small amount of patients in each group, but it was still a pretty satisfying study and a positive validation for the PCARN rule. In a spoonful, the PCARN Pediatric CT Head Rule passes external validation. Try to keep in mind, though, that the greatest power of the PCARN rule is really in ruling out a clinically important TBI, less of a rule in. Then from the third article, administration of beta-lactam prior to vancomycin as the first dose of antibiotic therapy improves survival in patients with bloodstream infections at the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Everyone knows that we have to give antibiotics to septic patients pretty much as soon as possible. That's pretty much branded into your mind in emergency medicine training at this point. When you order more than one antibiotic though, as is often done, then the order that you give those antibiotics could theoretically then be important beta-lactams can be given pretty quickly they have a broad spectrum against many dangerous bugs should they go first to answer this question we have a study this was an observational study of patients 13 years and older with bacterial bloodstream infections who received both a beta-lactam and vancomycin the goal was to assess if the order in which those antibiotics were given had an effect on mortality about 3,400 patients were enrolled over a four year period and about 80% of them got the beta-lactam first and the remaining 20% got vancomycin first. The most commonly used beta-lactams were piperacillin-tazobactam, cefepime, and then meropenem. Now infusing the beta-lactam first decreased seven day mortality with an odds ratio of 0.48, as well as the 48 hour mortality and adjusted odds ratio of 0.45. There were fairly large confidence intervals, but not huge. Even if the bacteremia was caused by MRSA, it wasn't better to give vancomycin first. But it also didn't hurt to give the beta-lactam second in those cases specifically. Of course, this was all just retrospective data. We don't know what influenced how these antibiotics were given very well. And this is honestly, this whole thing is an interesting effect since we've seen previous studies that don't necessarily support giving antibiotics in the case of sepsis like earlier than the first hour compared to in the first three hours. So I'm surprised to see that infusion times make that big of a difference. It seems a little, it's it's suspicious. Sepsis is common though, and this ought to be pretty easy to accomplish. Might as well go for it. In a spoonful, if you're prescribing a beta-lactam and vancomycin for sepsis, then giving the beta-lactam first could decrease the 7-day and 48-hour mortality. After that, we have the fourth article, which is titled The Association of a Clinician's Antibiotic Prescribing Rate with a Patient's Future Likelihood of Seeking Care and a Receipt of Antibiotics out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. This was an interesting paper. Now, a whopping 30% of outpatient antibiotic prescriptions are estimated to be inappropriate most of these cases being made up uh, by well acute respiratory tract infections we've all been there it's hard not to give a patient who's been waiting a really long time to see you while giving them nothing especially if you can't guarantee that their infection is not bacterial although let's be honest it's probably viral this study looks at the downstream effects of giving those antibiotics and oh how the dominoes will fall So here's an observational study of encounter data from a private U.S. insurer and visits to urgent care centers where patients were seen by a physician, a physician's assistant, or a nurse practitioner. More than 232,000 index visits were analyzed across more than 700 centers. The patients were grouped by quartile of the index provider's rate of prescribing antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infections regardless of whether or not the patient actually received antibiotics during that visit or not. Now, the primary outcome was the rate of acute respiratory tract infection antibiotic prescriptions per 100 people in the year following the index visit. The lowest quartile from the practitioners gave antibiotics 42% of the time, and the highest quartile gave antibiotics 80% of the time. That's a pretty big difference. And this association increased also, as well, the rates of subsequent antibiotic prescriptions over the next year. So if you gave more antibiotics, your patients were more likely to then get antibiotics again over the next year. Now, relative to the lowest quartile group, the rates of antibiotic scripts per 100 people increased by 1.8 times, 2.6 times, and 3 times as much for each of the subsequent quartiles. So, If you were seen by a lowest quartile doctor, that is they give less antibiotics, then you were a third as likely to get antibiotics again over the next year. As secondary outcomes, similar patterns were also seen for the rates of broad spectrum antibiotics and the sheer number of healthcare visits for acute respiratory tract infections. This effect even passed on to the spouses of those involved in the index visit. So it's not just you that's affected, you're actually passing this effect on to your family. That is freaking wild. Am I allowed to say freaking on here? I'm not sure. I said freaking. It was wild, okay? So this just adds to the other problems with inappropriate antibiotics, like multi-drug resistance and, of course, side effects of antibiotics. The authors believe that the rate of antibiotics given was probably as a result of the increase in visits in the same groups, not because they actually needed the antibiotics. Now when I don't give antibiotics, I usually trade with my patient. I give those patients more education about their affliction because I'm not handing them something else. Perhaps I ought to be doing this for all my patients though. The lack of education that we're not giving to patients who are getting antibiotics could be driving them to present more often or I could not flatter my educating skills. And it's just that these patients will be expecting to need something or to get something when they come to the doctor. So when they have similar symptoms in the future, they think that they need antibiotics again, when they might not have needed it in the first place. And then this expectation could rub off on us as well. And then we give more antibiotics. Now, of course, don't act like this isn't your problem either. 60% of the index visits were with emergency medicine doctors. We're all in the hook here. There, of course, could be confounders in this study, though, but I doubt they would erase this effect entirely. In a spoonful, giving antibiotics more frequently, likely unnecessarily, is associated with an increased rate of those patients presenting more often over the next year and being as much as three times more likely to also receive antibiotics again over the next year. And that'll bring us over to the fifth article, which is titled The Effect of Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy Initiation Time in Acute Carbon Monoxide Poisoning out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. The mainstay of treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning is hyperbaric oxygen. This may decrease mortality and seems to improve cognitive outcomes in symptomatic cases. The recommendation currently is to start treatment within 24 hours of exposure, but some advise that you should really be trying to start it within 6 hours. Like with other problems, time may equal brain for carbon monoxide poisoning. This was a retrospective study of a single center of 706 patients with symptomatic carbon monoxide poisoning. They compared cognitive outcomes based on the patient's delay to hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The groups were split into either early, that is within 6 hours, or late, which is 6 to 24 hours. Then they also subdivided that second group into case 1, Which was 6 to 12 hours and case 2 which was 12 to 24 hours after propensity score matching early treatment that is less than six hours had better cognitive outcomes than late treatment as measured by the global deterioration scale the early group so within six hours also had better outcome than the case 2 group at one month and better than case 1 and case 2 at six months all the differences mentioned here have been statistically significant this is again retrospective data And it's hard to pinpoint the exact carbon monoxide exposure time, but it still showed a benefit for early treatment. It didn't address whether or not late treatment was better than no treatment, though, which is a relevant question. In a spoonful, time is indeed brain in carbon monoxide poisoning. Treatment in less than six hours after exposure was associated with better outcomes than later treatment. And my favorite part, let's wrap up. What did we learn today? First off, yeah, there's a decent chance that your COBD patient has a PE. But if it didn't slap you in the face, then so what? Second, performing similarly to the original study, PCARN does a good job of ruling out clinically important TBIs and providing us with some risk stratification. Third, all things essentially equal, you should ask that the beta lactam be infused first for your septic patients, before vancomycin as this study showed this simple measure to decrease mortality. Fourth, think twice about caving and giving that antibiotic for what's probably a viral infection. And then fifth, try to get your carbon monoxide poisoning patients to hyperbaric oxygen within six hours. Time is brain. Now then, you've earned them. We offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where at that very same place, you can sign up for our newsfeed and get daily emails with spoon feeds of all of this research through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.